0: You're listening to A Show of Hearts, the podcast about finding the courage to live a deep and magical life. I'm your host, Life Coach Rosemary Pritzker. Welcome to A Show of Hearts, I'm Rosemary Pritzker, and my guest today is Inga Sargent. She's originally from Austria, grew up during World War II, and through a series of events you'll hear in the interview, she later became a Burmese princess when she married her first husband, Sao Chao Seng. She's the author of Twilight Over Burma, My Life as a Shan Princess, and is the recipient of a United Nations International Human Rights Award. Her story was also made into a movie by the German version of PBS. I'm so excited to share her story with you today because Inga is someone who is very near to my heart. I've known her most of my life. She's my step-great-grandmother, meaning her daughter, Mayuri, was married to my grandfather until he passed a few years ago. Inga lives in Boulder, Colorado, which is where I grew up. When I sat down with her, I spoke about my fond memories of when we used to go to her house for dinner when I was a kid and teen in the 90s. She would cook these amazing meals from different cultures around the world. It feels like an an honor and a privilege to be able to sit here and chat with you and and learn more about your story. And um, Your story has always inspired me so much, and not just your story, but your presence. Being around you feels special, you know? Um, And I think most of my family feels that way. Whenever I bring up your name, everyone's like, oh, Inga, we love her. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah. So thank you for being here with me today to sit and talk about your story.
1: Well, thank you, Rose. I'm delighted to see you as always. (laughs) And you're right. We have known each other. I don't even count years anymore. And you probably realize I'm old, <laughs> and I don't, uh, I still, I love cooking, I mm-hmm. still do a lot of yeah. cooking, but yeah. maybe not not as much or as yeah. good as I used to yeah. to do it. But I'm happy to see you, and mm-hmm. I'm delighted that you have that program, and mm-hmm. I wish you Lots of success. Thank you. I know you will. Okay.
0: (laughs) Um, So with that, the theme of my show is, you know, speaking with courageous people about how they followed their hearts. So I'd love to just ask you, what does it mean to you to follow the heart?
1: Uh, Well, uh, to follow the heart, I always think there's the brain and there's the heart. And, and sometimes the brain warns you and says, don't do that. Mm-hmm. And the heart says, go ahead, go ahead. And that's what I always did. Yeah. And I have never regretted it for one moment, mm-hmm. even though the, the, sometimes the results weren't exactly in, in other people's mind, the right results, mm-hmm. but for me they were. Mm-hmm. And so whenever there was a choice, it was always mm-hmm. the heart that prevailed. Mm-hmm. I was uh, born in a small town in a small valley in southern Austria. And the only college prep high school, they only accepted boys. And then finally they they had to finally accept girls. So I was one of the few girls who who went, uh, I still remember, I was at ten. They put you either in the general school or the college prep school. And I did very well in my exams, uh, in entrance exams, in math and reading and writing, and I did not know how to do the somersault backwards. <laughs> and that was a requirement. And oh my gosh, I tried and tried and I couldn't do it. Yeah. So there was a question, well, will they accept me? That, that was still during the Hitler time, you know, when... when Uh, All sorts of things were very important to them, like phys ed and so on. And then they took me.
0: Well, so I imagine um, growing up with experiences like that during the time of the Nazis must have instilled a lot of bravery and resilience and things like that in you.
1: Yeah, and and that's one thing I I didn't write in the book that happened before. My mother was arrested. I I still remember she was taken in by the Nazis in a small town. And I opened the door because somebody knocked and there were two German soldiers in uniform. And they said they wanted to speak to my mother. And I said, well, okay. So I called my mother and I was... 12 maybe at that time. And so my mother came and they said, here is the Iron Cross of motherhood that Hitler gives you. And she said, what for? And he said, well, you have four children. And as uh, as a mother of four children, the the Reich or whoever gives you this motherhood. And she said, I don't want that because I had the kids for myself, not for Hitler or anybody. And she gave it. She didn't accept it. And then she was carted off to jail, of course. But she, uh, she was taken out. <laughs> I yeah. mean, she, she was she was able to come out. But uh, you know, yeah. things like that happened. So it was a very a testy, trying period. Yeah. My mother was ambitious, and she was, and and my father also, but he knew how to do it, like. He knew how to treat me like every morning from the age of ten to eighteen, I had to take the train Monday through Saturday to school down to the other end of the valley at six thirty in the morning, and I sometimes said, "I don't want to get up I don't want to go to to i don't want to go to school and then my father said, "Well, you don't have to you don't have to go to college prep you can go and go to the general school here so so in a way he was he was using other techniques
0: Inge was one of the first austrians to ever receive a fulbright scholarship which enabled her to attend university in denver colorado in 1951
1: yeah. that was the very first group yeah um, and then i said well you know i follow my heart and that said go to the us yeah it was i mean quite exciting uh,
0: what I keep thinking about when I think about that piece of your story is just for a woman in the early 50s to go to university at all, much less across the world where they speak another language, was pretty daring.
1: Yeah, I, I didn't, I didn't, you're right, it, it was considered, but luckily my family was reasonable or nice, and because, uh, you know, it wasn't that long after World War Two, and they were kind of suspicious. Right. And they uh, said, "Are you really ready to go? You know, across the ocean and mm-hmm. and find out?" And I said, "Sure, sure. I, I'd love to. That's where yeah. where I want to go. I want to mm-hmm. go and see the world. I mean, there was no such restriction. You are supposed to do this. Mm-hmm. You are supposed to do. You do what you feel is right for you." Mm-hmm. And we we don't know we have no idea what you're getting into, mm-hmm. but you have our blessing, mm-hmm. so I went. yeah, it was very exciting and coming to the US, my goodness.
0: Inga reminisced about her time at Colorado women's College.
1: We didn't un- quite understand when all the w- the girls in the women's college, they got all excited about panty raids. Well, we didn't know what? what that was, you know. Panty, do you know what the panty... No. It's that uh, that men from a men's college tried to climb up in the night somewhere and open windows and go into the drawers and take out the panties of girls and <laughs> oh steal them. Those are <laughs> called panty raids.
0: That's hilarious. And we
1: thought it was stupid.
0: <laughs> yeah, Um so tell me about meeting Sal. Like, what was the moment when you first met him?
1: In I think in Sept October, October, nineteen fifty-one. Mm-hmm. My gosh, long time ago, nineteen fifty-one, October. We went to a, a, to a place where they had a, a, every every Friday a kind of get together for international students. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's where I met Sal.
0: Do you remember the moment you met him? Mm -hmm. What was that like?
1: There was an instant recognition of Mm -hmm. something, of a chemistry or a spark or a person. I didn't didn't know what it was, but there were lots of other people around. Mm -hmm. But he. there was something that spoke to me, that spoke to my heart directly. And that was uh, that was uh, you know there were other guys and, and I, I had lots of uh, invitations to go out to dates and so on and uh, that didn't interest yeah. me, but he did yeah. he did and there was there was some recognition and also from his side. <laughs> And they had some music on on records, you know. The 40, so so we danced, and oh. and that was that was yeah. very exciting. And then we had a phone, four girls to a telephone, which yeah. isn't easy. And then he called, and and <laughs> so we had. That's when it all started. Oh. got engaged and I went back to Austria and told my parents, uh, you know, I want to marry. And my father said, well, when you are 21, you can marry, you can cut your hair and you can smoke. I never smoked, I never cut my hair, but I did get married when I was twenty one you yeah. know and so he came to visit my par- uh, me and ask my father for my hand in marriage, oh. which I had to translate yeah. because his his German was you know uh, one semester at the school of Mines yeah. that was it so yeah. and uh, he was definitely different racially and and in any way, you know, religious, but he obviously he promised my parents that I could come home anytime I wanted to, but we were going to live in Burma. He said he wanted to speak to my father alone, and I said, okay. It Good won't luck. be much of a conversation, <laughs> but yeah. I wasn't included. And so they went into the, we had a little orchard right next to to where I grew, I mean the building. So they went in the orchard and very soon they came back and they were slapping each other on the shoulder and saying, yeah, 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 I heard a lot of yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, later on, Sao told me that he told my father that he he was a ruling prince. But my father didn't get it. (sighs) And and so he said that he thought my father understood and my father was going to tell uh, my mother and my mother was going to tell me. Nobody knew.
0: So what did your father think he said?
1: Uh, My father just... uh, I asked, what, what did you speak about? And he said, oh, this and that, or the trees, yeah. or the fruit, or whatever, in the, in the garden. That oh. was it.
2: <laughs> no. Meanwhile, Sal thinks that they know, yeah. Uh, wow.
0: Inga and Sal weren't able to get married in Austria because Austria and Burma were still at war. The process of making peace would take a year or longer, but Inga did not want to wait. So they returned to Colorado to get married there.
1: And then we got married. He a Buddhist. I was then a Catholic. That was everybody else. In a Jewish home, by a Methodist minister. The bridesmaid was Confucius from Hong Kong. The best man was Coptic from Ethiopia. And that was our our wedding.
0: Yeah, yeah. Seems seems a perfect way to start what then happened with yeah. the rest of the story. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah.
1: And we were the first couple in uh, in in Colorado who got an interracial marriage. Uh, mm. Yeah, I remember you permit. telling
0: that. Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. I asked Inga what gave her the courage to say yes to Sao's proposal, knowing that it would mean living in Burma.
1: I knew nothing about Burma. Right. But I had an absolute trust and faith in him. Mm-hmm. And I thought I, to me it was, if he thinks I can do, I can live there, mm-hmm. I can live there.
2: yeah.
1: So he had I mean, there was so much faith and trust in me that I said, "Oh, I can do that." Mm-hmm. And even then, when we went first when we went to Rangoon, the capital of Burma. Mm-hmm. Oh, and uh, we had to still go up to our um, to our estate, which is about seven hundred miles or six hundred miles from Rangoon. People said, "Oh, you don't want to go there. There are headhunters and witches and all." So, and I said, "Well, so be it. Mm. You know, I want oh, wow. to go and I want to live there. And and he trusts me, and I trust him. Mm, that's that amazing."
0: That's really beautiful. There was,
1: there was really never any doubt in my mind. Never. Mm-hmm. Amazing.
0: Sao didn't tell Inga that he was a
1: ruling prince until they arrived in Burma, already married and so he always postponed telling me yeah. and there was something that he uh, he didn't want to me to have ro- different expectations i mean he didn't want me to expect to flitter around like a princess and and so on and and so he never he never told me and then he had to when we right. when we came to rangoon and yeah. uh, and all those people were there to welcome us, and I still remember saying to, him, "But, but why, why would they welcome a mining engineer like that? You know, because I would married a mining engineer." Yeah, and then he told me, he, yeah. you know, after a while, and I was a little miffed at him mm-hmm. yeah. because I had absolutely trusted him, and then here, here I come, and he said, "You are, you are going to be." Everybody welcomed me as as their princess, and I had absolutely no idea. And so in a, uh, he, did, he said, I'll tell you later, I'll tell you later. But, but there were always people around, yeah. even in the hotel, the Strand Hotel, where we stayed.
0: The impression I got um, from talking to you in the past and from what I read in the book was that he didn't tell you because he wanted you to love him for who he was as a person. Is that... Yes, accurate. very
1: much, so mm-hmm. he I mean, I wanted him, and I didn't care for yeah. for for everything around yeah and
0: so what um what were your first impressions of what it meant to be a princess in that context
1: well, first of all i mean my my first priority was always he yeah. he was the first priority, and then you know the thing was that. We had so many servants, mm-hmm. and and he said, "Oh, that's now that's your you you take care of that. That's your department." And so so I had uh, all of a sudden. What do you do with all those servants? And he said, "That's your that's your job. <laughs> uh, food. What do you do? You, you well you you do the menu for every day." Well, I didn't know what most of those things were. You know, and then the the visitors, I mean, there were constantly people coming, and first they all they, they went on their knees and they only approached me on their knees, and I said, no, 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 no no, that won't work. So mm-hmm. So that was a big shock yeah. in the beginning. And then uh, festivals, he did not really appreciate too many. We didn't have too many festivals because he said, no. Uh, you know, these festivals still cost money, and the money is much better uh, uh, invested in the people than in stupid festivals.
0: Inge went on to explain more of the cultural differences that she had to adapt to in this new role as their princess.
1: Well, for instance, the sermons would never take a day off. Mm-hmm. And then I I've figured out in, in a schedule that everybody had to have their day off. When the day off came and they were here. So I said, it's your day off. Oh, you don't want me to be here. No, yes, I want you to be around, but today is your day off to do something else. We don't want that. Same with vacations. Mm-hmm. But they said that if there is a reason, then they'll ask me. Yeah, And so that was, that was part of my thing, to yeah. <laughs> take care of everybody and make everybody happy. And well, and to adjust to those cultural differences. There was, there was a lot of adjustment, but it was, it was part. I, mm-hmm. I never resented it. I never even questioned mm-hmm. it. It was mm-hmm. just part of life. Yeah.
0: So what was your full Shan name?
1: My full Shan name was Saudusandi, mm-hmm. and nobody ever called me that mm. because Sandy, the people would always, they refer to me as royal mother, royal sister, mm-hmm. royal elder sister, royal auntie, mm-hmm. royal grandmother, even though I was only 22 years old, you know. Yeah. But they always kind of put, uh, they, they, they used a title and then mm-hmm. they put themselves in, in uh, kind of in the relationship. They would be if I were their aunt right. or their sister. So nobody really knew my name. And then I, w- I had a title, the Mahadevi of Sipo. Hmm.
0: And what was Sao's full name?
1: It was Sao Seng Sao of Sipo State. Yeah. So so mm-hmm. that was that was our name. So what was the food like? The food was uh, delicious. Of mm-hmm. course, first the uh, main cook tried to get give me some British food, which is, was pretty awful. Mm-hmm. And then I said, no, I want shan food. And then he started to make very, very good shan food. Mm-hmm. And that is more, a lot of vegetables, uh, stir-fried, uh, not heavy on oil. Mm-hmm. They didn't use butter. And uh, uh, lots of uh, Lots of the homegrown vegetables and a little bit of meat, but not much. You know, small pieces. That's why when you see somebody now from Asia and you, they see a big steak, they just about yeah leave yeah. <laughs> to say the least. But the food was very, very good, and the fruit. Oh, the fruit was delicious. Good
0: The Shan people originated in China, and then in 69 BC, in order to avoid persecution from the northern Chinese, they began to spread through Thailand, Laos, and eventually Burma. But while they're related to the Thai, the Laotians, and the Chinese, they're not related to any other ethnic group within Burma. The last census done was in 1931, when Shans were 7% of the population of Burma. Sipo state, where Sao and Inga ruled, is one of the largest of the Shan states, Located in northern Burma, it's about the size of Connecticut, and the closest border is China. Inga says her guess is that there were somewhere around a few hundred thousand or maybe half a million people in Sipo during the time she
1: lived there. The Shan people, I mean, they impressed me so much. Of course, I had to learn Shan, which is a tonal language. Mm -hmm. But uh, what impressed me is their compassion and they're really caring and their mita, I don't know, their love for other people. And it was, I, I always, in the beginning, I didn't understand, I would pay the salaries and they would, on the way home, they would give away most of it to somebody who needed it more than they did. Mm. Or like when somebody died, there was never ever an announcement or asking for help, People went there and helped them before before they could say anything, and they were they were taking care. There were there were no uh, no mental institutions, no old age homes, no kindergartens. You know, everybody took care of everybody else, mm-hmm. and there were no no hotels. But basically, when somebody came into town, so the the Shan people said, to "Come and." stay with us mm. stay Amazing. here, yeah. we have room we have always room mm. wow, that's and so different they are so, so kind and that's what they were to me I mean, here I came mm. make lots of boo-boos <laughs> um, yeah. like for instance when you have the in Shan, the, the, you have the syllable M-A, ma mm-hmm. ma, ma ma, ma, ma yeah. and they have five different meanings yeah. and ma is come and if you say ma it's dog so instead of telling somebody I, I said come ma, ma Ma, and I would say ma and I call this person a dog which isn't very nice but,
0: but I'm sure they understood you were learning understood. the language yeah
1: they understood yeah. and they were always kind mm-hmm. and they were helping me, and, mm. and I I respected them, and they respected mm. me. And mm. it was a lot of respect for everybody. Mm. That is something. Mm. And a lot of kindness and, mm. and offering and, and love, yeah. really. Yeah. They, they, they were so, so gentle, mm. gentle people. I don't say that all Shans are just perfect angels. Right. I mean, <laughs> but... Generally, that was just generally their their kind of approach. Mm
0: -hmm. You're listening to A Show of Hearts. I'm Rosemary Pritzker. If you're inspired by what you're hearing, grab your phone, take a screenshot of this episode, open Instagram, and post the photo to your friends. Tell them why you love what you're hearing and how you're going to apply it to your life. And then use hashtag A Show of Hearts. Sao was a kind and thoughtful man who deeply believed in the power of democracy. This belief was emboldened when he returned to Burma from his four years in the United States, where he'd had the chance to witness and take part in what was in the 1950s a stable democracy. But unfortunately, he was only one man, and while he and Inga were able to do a lot of good during the ten years in which they ruled together in Burma, the region itself continued to destabilize more and more. This was due to violence and political manipulations involving everyone from the Burmese army to various rebel groups and was affected by the remnants of both British colonial rule and a brutal war that was perpetrated by the Japanese in the 1940s. Sao believed stability would come through diplomacy, and for this he gained a great deal of respect and admiration from many of his people. But in the end, the instability was too great and the military too strong, and in 1962, Everything changed.
1: The prime minister of Burma, who was UNU, uh, had uh, a conference planned, a nationality conference in Rangoon, and, and all, all the ruling princes and all the different ethnic minorities were invited, and they were going to for once and for all settle who is, who is going to be politically in what position, and that's when the military struck and arrested everybody, the whole, I mean, thousands of people, the whole cabinet, the whole Supreme Court, the whole, uh, um, what you call, Congress, mm-hmm. you know, upper house, lower house, all the leaders, and they uh, they arrested everybody and uh, killed a few people in there uh, right away. They went they were killed in prison, and then um, my first husband's house was never—they never admitted to having arrested him and taken him, but they killed him. So, what happened to you and the girls when that happened? Well, we first of all, there was this desperate search for him, mm-hmm. and I was under house arrest, and I couldn't go. Canary was not quite three and Myri was not quite six mm. and we were we were in our little residence a palace and and most of our loyal um, kind of servants were either they were either arrested or they stayed with us but I couldn't go anywhere there were lists coming out in the newspapers saying so-and-so had been arrested, and then they always said my first husband was never seen. They, they, they didn't know what happened but to him. But there were
0: witnesses, right?
1: There were witnesses, and the, there were letters.
0: Yeah, but so, the letters came, like, what, one and two days after he was arrested?
1: Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so there was the search for him, you know, and then and, and some papers said... He was uh, he was never arrested, and I got letters from him, two two messages that he was arrested and he was seen, and then of course people came and said well, he was seen here, and the others said no, he was thrown out of a plane, somewhere. And the other said, "No, no, that's not true. He was in that prison. Somebody saw him." So of course I said to everybody, "Well, get me proof, you know. Mm-hmm. I want proof. I want either his signature or, or 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 another letter from him, you know." And so I kept searching and looking, and I wrote, although I was not allowed to leave. I had messengers taking letters to seven newspapers mm. and one of them was an english newspaper english language the others were burmese and i wrote and i said he he was taken in at that place at that time there were witnesses and uh, only one burmese newspaper printed my letter mm. the others did not and the english uh, newspaper did not either and and as soon as that came out, then the military intelligence came and said, "What did you do? What did you do? You made things very difficult for us." And I said, "What do you mean?" And they said, "You you sent this letter." And I said, "Yes, I did it because you didn't. Mm-hmm. You you were supposed it was the army's uh, responsibility, and since you didn't do your the thing that's uh, you are responsible for, I did." And so they said, you're making things difficult. And I said, what is difficult for you?
0: Yeah. Not that things weren't difficult for
1: you. Was not allowed to get my mail. I was not allowed to see anybody until I finally decided I'm going to go and see the, the colonel there. The drivers were arrested. They were gone. But uh, I had uh, the car, you know, the, the the Mercedes, and I was not allowed to leave our place. And there was a gate, and I I took the car and asked my mate to come with me, Bamwe and so we went to the gate. The gate was open, but there were the six six um, Burmese military standing there. And I stopped, and they said, you can't go out, you can't go any further. And I said, well, I have to go to see the colonel. And then they said, okay, if you go any further, we'll shoot. And there were were six, uh, uh, these uh, AK-47s pointed at me. And uh, then I said, well, I have to go see the colonel, and you have to shoot. So you do what you want, but I'm going. And I went by, and they didn't shoot, otherwise I wouldn't be here. Mm-hmm. You know, this is kind of difficult, and I felt I had to do it. Mm-hmm. There was no, uh, uh, no no, fear. I mean, my, my maid was trembling like a thing, like in the, she was sitting in the back seat. Yeah. And she was afraid, and I was not. I just went. and. So tell me about the decision
0: to escape Burma and what that was like.
1: Well, Sal had always said, if I somehow disappear or die or anything, he said, I want you to go back to you to Austria to your family. And uh, and I said, no, I don't. I don't think so. I I would want to look for you. And he said, no, that would be no use because if I'm not here. Uh, you wouldn't be safe. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, I don't care. I I, I I, I, would like to do that. And he said, no, you must promise me. You must promise me that if anything happens to me, and I had some premonitions mm-hmm. before that something would happen, but I didn't know what. And then uh, uh, when there was all this thing, and I tried everything, you know, there were all these uh, questions, what happened to him, and I couldn't solve it in Burma. And then I thought, uh, maybe I should go and, and work from the outside. And actually, uh, to leave from our place to Rangoon, mm-hmm. the brother of the former Secretary-General of the United Nations, Utan, mm-hmm. his brother, U Khan, came and helped me to get down. So I went to Rangoon where we had some houses and the kids went to school there and I was, you know, trying, in Rangoon, trying to find out what, what happened, where was Sao. I, I still hadn't accepted that he, he was dead, although I was told. And then finally when somebody, uh, one of the previous commanders of this general, Win, this hateful man, uh, came to tell me that he 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 was sure that Sao was not alive anymore. I didn't really want to believe him yeah you know how it is you 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 want to you don't want to believe that because you haven't seen you and and you're still hoping yeah. but then i I decided the best way to try and find out more what happened to him or if we if if I meet him again, it would be if I leave the country. Mm-hmm. And that's when, you know, I left under, under incredible circumstances.
0: Yeah, yeah, it sounds like it was actually hard to leave.
1: It was, it was, because uh, they delayed uh, my leaving since uh, I was always an Austrian citizen. Mm-hmm. And eventually they had to give me permission to leave they were not allowed to, to hold somebody, but the children were both born there. Mm-hmm. and they were, they were obviously Burmese citizens. And so somebody had to, uh, to kind of verify that the kids were Austrians and then I could I had a chance. And the Austrian ambassador who was responsible for, for Burma, the whole area, was in Karachi. Pakistan, and, and he said no, he can't do that. It's against the laws in Austria to put the kids in my passport. And then a friend of mine went to Bangkok and uh, through some circumstances which I describe in the book, he did it. He put the children in a passport uh, saying this is to verify that Myer um, is Austrian citizen. The next page is to verify that Canary is an Austrian citizen, and then I was told you have to leave tonight, mm-hmm. because uh, the only person who would find who knows is in India, and all the others are in jail. You know the ones who knew the laws; they're all in jail. So you either leave tonight or. You have to wait because there was only one plane a week that went to the west. So we had three hours to pack and then not sure. And I didn't get my passport until we were on the plane because they they kept my passport with the children in it. So they said, no, you are not allowed to take out money, uh, no currency, no jewelry, no uh, documents, no photos, no journals. And, uh, so you had nothing? Nothing. When we came to Vienna, I didn't even have a dime to make a phone call to my parents or to take the bus, because uh, the, the airport in Vienna was like, uh, like DIA was before. There was nothing except an airport, you know. We got there to Vienna, and nobody knew, and my parents never got the telegram. Up to today, it hadn't arrived yet that I was coming. Uh, so I, everybody uh, got off the plane and left. There were people who were either by by taxi or by relatives, and I just sat there in a corner with with my suitcases, wearing a western outfit or a, a suit, which of course the 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 fashion had changed. It was either Shorter or longer, I don't remember. I think short. Mm-hmm. And mine was long because over there I always wore the long G and the A G, you know. So I got this and the lapel was wrong, everything was wrong. So I just sat in the corner and I thought, I'll just wait. And Mayary and Canary were, by by that time they were eight and five. Mm-hmm. And they had never in their life seen revolving doors that opened by them. Not what you call self-opening doors. And so they were fascinated. And they ran in and out and in and out over there. And I was sitting in the corner. Everybody had left. There comes a uh, ground stewardess for Pan Am. And uh, Pan Am, when you flew there... She comes down on, uh, in the main hall and says something to Myri, mm-hmm. And Myri pointed at me, and then she kept running. Mm-hmm. And then this woman asked her again, and, My- and Myri pointed at me and kept running. You know, canary, they had a lot of fun. And then that woman came over and said, Inge, is it you? And I said, yeah, yeah and and i i recognized her she had uh, she was our guest about um, a few months before the coup d'etat happened she was the wife of a, a director of the steel industry in austria and she recognized myri oh wow and that was 2 years later and asked her there, aren't you Myri from Sipo? And she yeah. said, yes, yes, yes. And she kept running. Yeah. Second time yeah. she said, uh, uh, where's your mother? Yeah. And then she pointed to me. Mm-hmm. And uh, this uh, this Lola Chermak, mm-hmm. who, who in the meantime had become ground stewardess or something for Pan Am, said, well, can... My goodness, we were all worried about you. We knew what happened and so on. How can I help you? And I said, actually, a little money. If you could loan me some money, I would be happy. And then she gave me some money, and I called my family, and they were about five hours away by car. And I took the bus into a hotel, you know, into Vienna, and stayed there. I mean, all those coincidences, you know. I just uh, and uh,
0: taken care of. Yeah,
1: and not that I, I was uh, nervously walking around, but I just said something, something, something's going, going to happen. Yeah,
0: with everything you had been through, not knowing where he was, um, and you know, I just would love to know, like, how did you? How did you go on after that? You know, uh, besides you know just having to be there for the girls, what what tools were there that you used or um, practices that helped you get through being under house arrest, having to escape, all of that?
1: Well, you know, uh, actually, it was Buddhist meditation. And I, I always rejected it when I, when Sa was around because I said I don't believe in dukkha, I don't believe life is suffering. I just don't believe in it. I'm not. Yeah, I was not a Catholic anymore because the Catholics wanted me to, to promise that the kids would be raised Catholic and that I would do everything to to uh, change the religion of my husband. I said, I, I, can't prom- I don't want to promise that. So then <laughs> I was, that was the end of Catholicism. And, and I really liked a lot of the Buddhist philosophy. Not, so, not, not all the practices, because there's a lot of it is, is kind of a part of the old Burmese culture. But uh, then I uh, was meditated, and I, I I must have meditated, but not following anybody, just within me, following my heart and, and what I thought was right. And then when when he disappeared, I, I became a serious practitioner. and I was uh, just about, uh, you know, I, I couldn't make uh, decisions. My mind was just not good enough. And the decision to leave, or or to leave Burma for Austria, or or to stay, because I had all this responsibility for all the other people. And so I decided I was not, uh, you know, I needed help, and there was no... There was no uh, psychotherapist, there was no psychologist, and so I went to a, to a seado and, and, and started practicing vipassana. And I did that, and, and that made it possible for me to, uh, make, uh, to make decisions again and made my mind sharper. But I wouldn't. I I don't fit into any of the other practices. I don't like churches. I don't yeah. like uh, to be uh, members of of that that community. I do my own.
0: Do you still Medi- do any of those yes. meditations now? Yes, I mm. do.
1: I do every evening, mm-hmm. and I should do more. But <laughs> but I am vis- very satisfied. Yeah. I'm, I say, I made no wrong decisions. I, made, I did the right thing, and, and I followed what I really felt was right, and I followed my heart. Mm-hmm. And uh, things, some things turned out differently, but yeah. uh, I'm, I'm at peace with myself. Right.
0: I asked Inga what happened when she got back to Austria.
1: First of all, I didn't stay in Austria. I stayed two years, and I couldn't stand it. Because if one, one of the major reasons was they would not give me the guardianship for my own children. Mm. They said, you have to have the father's permission. So I said, the father is dead. Well, if he is dead, then you bring the death certificate. And I said, oh, yeah, the general who had him assassinated is going to say, yeah, yeah say I killed him, Sure. Well, if you can't get the death certificate, you get to get his permission. So it went on for two years. That makes no sense. Until I met uh, somebody who went to my school, a little senior, who, were, who was, uh, had joined the chief uh, court, mm-hmm. or the chief justice. He was one of the chief justices of Austria, and I told him that. And then, uh, uh, like 10 days later, I had the thing. But I had already decided I I didn't want to stay in Austria. So I said, I'm going back to the U.S. And I had only good experiences here before. I mean, I I didn't know a lot of uh, the bad things about this country. (laughs) And I said, I'm going to be here. I'll be able to raise the children by myself.
0: When she moved back to Colorado... Inga met her second husband, Tad
1: Sargent. I am a person who does not believe in coincidences Mm. because uh, I had a roommate at the Colorado Women's College from Raton, New Mexico. Mm. And in the meantime, her mother moved to Erie, Colorado and had let half of her house to a graduate student. That was Tad. And I went once to meet Mrs. Sparks because, you know, her daughter had died. And uh, anyway, I took the two children. And the first semester at Denver, I was on a bicycle only. The second, I had an old car from somebody. So I took the car, went to Erie, Colorado. And in the garden, uh, she said, oh, this is my tenant, you know, this tall guy. Mm -hmm. I said, okay. And then I went to CU to get my master's, and there's this tall guy in, in Norland Library and said, do you remember me? And I said, oh, I not you could be Mrs. Sparks' tenant, but I'm not sure. Well, we kept running into each other just about every other day in the post office in Safeway, and then I remembered him, and uh, I somehow feel that that Sal had sent him. I really do.
0: Years ago, Inga did an interview with Jana Graeber in which she said, I am connected to the Shan people of Burma. I've lived with them and lost my heart there. How can I not help them? Someone has to help them. So that, I mean, that's quite a statement of I lost my heart there. Could you say a little bit more about what you meant by that and how you managed to open your heart and love again?
1: It's, I, I live here, and, and, you know, Ted is very, very care, caring. I mean, the care and the love I receive from him, and I, the respect, and I love him very much. But I'm, it was just the feeling that I belonged there, that I had lived there before. And that I was. This was. This was where I was meant to be, yeah. and that's where actually my heart is there. Mm-hmm. My heart is there every yeah. day still. Yeah. And the Shan people, uh, who I, I get calls from them, mm. and there there are two actually in in Boulder, and myri really supports their yeah. school, their school fees and so on. Um, so
0: if there were any Sean people listening to this right now anywhere in the world, is there a message that you would want to send to them anything you would want to say?
1: I would say uh, don't forget mm-hmm. your your homeland, your culture be proud of it mm-hmm. and be proud of your history and 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 uh, keep keep your 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 metta and your your feeling and your heart keep it where it should be mm. you may be in another country but you're still your Ashan. shan mm. you'll always be a shan mm,
0: that's beautiful um you've said this word a couple of times now metta can you um explain a little bit about what that is
1: okay metta Mitta is what what i send every day to all beings, mm-hmm. whether they are uh, they are humans or they are trees or they are animals or they are in, in different uh, spheres. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, it's a compassion and a love and an understanding. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I don't think the word love alone translates. Mm-hmm. And the Mita is the, 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 the kind of the it is a love. But I've heard it
0: translated as loving kindness, but yeah, you know, yeah. it's it seems like it's one of those words that um, my reference point is more Tibetan, where there's all mm-hmm, these mm-hmm, these mm-hmm, words mm-hmm. that there's no way of translating. No, it, it could no, take no, years to understand no. the meaning of that one word. So, yeah.
1: and Mita is uh, it it is love, but not alone, mm-hmm. uh, and it's very difficult. I mean, it's it's just a compassion, mm-hmm. I think compassion and love together mm-hmm. kindness compassion love yeah. caring yeah. and that's 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 how I really feel towards mankind and yeah. I used to be more i used to hate the person and I couldn't get over it yeah. uh, the person who killed sao but He's dead, and I yeah. try that that's where I have to work. Yeah. I'm not perfect. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: Tell me about the process of writing the book and what
1: inspired you to do that. When I first came to, uh, to the United States, my job was to, to raise the children. And both, uh, I mean, I started, the only way I could be with the children as much as possible was by becoming a teacher. And I'm not uh, particularly fond of the German language, but that's something I knew, and they needed German teachers, so I I taught school. Uh, But I always felt that I needed to write, uh, at least for the family, the, the story of my of, of Sao and uh, my, my life in Sipo and about the Shan people. And then I said, okay, I shocked everybody. I said, I'm going to write about my life. I needed to write it. I also needed it to write it for therapy mm-hmm. so that I could live with, because some of those facts or some of the events in my life were pretty hard and pretty tough to to, uh, to kind of digest or to live with. And Tad was my main editor. And, and I would write in the evening. And, of course, he's an engineer, so he said, there's a way to write. You have to, li- to have an outline. I said, no, I just write this and that, and then I put it together. And then in the evening, I would write and print it out. In the morning, he would read it, and he's a big reader, and he said... Gosh, this this looks like a real author wrote it. <laughs> yeah, and the so, book is
0: actually it's really good. Yeah, yeah.
1: So he encouraged me. He he encouraged me, and and I, I owe a lot to him because if any husband in this in a marriage, you know, mm. said no, yeah, okay. I don't know, but it wasn't. I mean, he was very supportive and very encouraging and so i i had to write a book and 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 i didn't first think of of uh, having it published and we did have some problems and your grandfather helped with uh, his, i mean he was a tremendous help it all worked together you know i don't know how but it came out and now the shan people who come. There were actually some who had to pay their fare. They were in in some institute in Texas. uh, The Bush Institute, I've never heard of that before. And they had to pay their own way to come and see me, just recently. Mm. That was another group. And uh, they said that this, my book is their only history they have of of those times. And it wasn't meant to be a history book. Because I did not, uh, I couldn't get the permission of people to use their names, you know, except when they were dead. I I gave some people wrong names and yet they came and thanked me and said this is the only, this is the only history we have of, of our culture and of our life. Yeah. And I'm very proud of that. Yeah.
0: Well, tell me more about um, the catharsis of writing it. Like what that did for you.
1: That, in a way, made me the 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 whole process of writing made me uh, kind of uh, remember and face what had happened. Before there were some instances and some events which I tried to just put aside. But when you write, you can't. You have to, to really delve into your feelings. And that was, uh, that was really a catharsis, and that helped me tremendously. Later on, I could talk about it. Before, I could. there were certain things I couldn't talk about. To this day, it's not
0: safe for Inga to return to Burma. So in 1999, she and Tad started an organization called Burma Lifeline, so that she could still have a way to help the Burmese people from across the world.
1: We had a board of directors, but we, we were running the whole thing. He yeah. did all the sending, all the, the um, internet stuff, and I did the money-raising. We helped people who tried to escape from there and, and raise money. And, and I, I spoke, I don't know how many times people asked me to come. To, they still do. And so we raised, uh, well, uh, over a million dollars, which is mm-hmm. not easy here, yeah. One almost two million dollars. Mm-hmm. When I turned 80, I said, I can't do it anymore. Mm-hmm. And Tad said I can't, he couldn't do it alone. Yeah. So then we merged with a group in, in San Francisco, the Partners Asia, mm-hmm. and we uh, gave them the money that we had left and they are giving now a South Sunday Leadership Award every oh. year. Wow, that's like a, a, a I mean, in, not in response like the MacArthur Grant, mm-hmm. and they're outstanding people who promise that when it's possible to return to the Shan State, where they where they lived, they don't have to be Shans because yeah. there are other minorities. Mm-hmm. And, and they get a stipend, like $4,000 now. It was 3000 free and no strings attached and a certificate and a celebration. So and this will be the 10th year that we have done that.
0: Are there ways in which those 10 years of being royalty still affect who you are today that you that you notice
1: well I am the same person and I, uh, I feel you know a commitment to my people and I feel uh, if they need help that I, I help as much as I can and uh, and I'm I belong there, I'm one of them.
0: Yeah. So what gifts did Sao give to your life?
1: Love. Mm. He gave me uh, unconditional love and and, and uh, a togetherness, a kind of a, almost a merging of two people into one. Mm and of course he gave me the children mm-hmm. you know and he has given me a a different perspective i think he has given me a perspective that is kind of boundless mm-hmm. and i i would say that he has given me a a perspective of we are all we are all one mm-hmm. we are all the same uh, mm-hmm. but uh You have to uh, to be accepting, you have to be loving, and you have to be caring.
0: To learn more about the Shan people, the history of Burma, or a more detailed account of Inga's story, I highly recommend reading her book, Twilight Over Burma, My Life as a Shan Princess. The link is in the show notes. And if you'd like to support efforts to help the people of Burma, please visit the website for the organization that took on Burma Lifeline after Inga and Tad retired, Partners Asia, also in the show notes. Thank you for listening to A Show of Hearts. If you enjoyed what you heard, please subscribe in iTunes and share it with your favorite people. Visit our website, ashowofhearts.com, where you can sign up for emails and explore all our episodes in depth. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at A Show of Hearts. Remember to choose courage, even when it's scary. And join me in igniting the world with our hearts.